Section 7 of Malaria in Greek History by William Henry Samuel Jones and Edward Theodore Whittington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Appendix 1. Up to the present, it has been the harm done by malaria that has claimed our attention. But in ancient Greece, the disease may have helped to foster a new ideal of womanhood, which gradually became more prominent during the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. It is unfortunate but inevitable that the evidence is so slight. Its true value can only be appreciated when account is taken of all the other lines of testimony that have been dealt with in the preceding pages. It has been pointed out that in the new comedy, an entirely new view of marriage and of womanhood is to be found. Whereas the older comic poets ridiculed family life and love all that was not purely sensual and bestowed upon hetere only. The new comedy treats of love for a virgin, the consummation of which is a happy marriage. What is more, the family relations, as illustrated by these later poets, are far more pleasant than they are in earlier poetry. According to the writer who first discussed this subject at length, the idea that a woman is a worthy object for a man's love, and that such love should find its consummation in marriage, was originally propounded by Antimachus of Colophon at the end of the 5th century, and was somehow communicated from Antimachus to Menander. Although Benek pushes his theory to extremes, he has certainly proved that in the new comedy the family relations are more cordial and affectionate, but it is certainly an error to regard the question from a purely literary standpoint. Literature and the thoughts enshrined in literature must be considered in relation to the life of the people whose manners are portrayed. If Menander shows us a more exalted view of marriage, it is not because Antimachus wrote, lied, but because the Athenians had learned to love their wives more. For this change of feeling, for a change there was, even though we cannot accept altogether Benek's depreciation of wedded life in early Greece, many reasons might be brought forward by the historian the chief of which, perhaps, is a gradual decay of the city-state. As the life of the citizen grew less absorbing and less satisfying, men put a higher value upon their families and homes, but the subtle disease, the history of which has occupied the preceding pages, seems to have played a part in bringing about the result. A most remarkable feature of the ancient medical writings is the scant attention paid to that very important factor in modern treatment, the nurse. Professional nurses were apparently unknown, and the general impression that the reader forms is that the physician did not consider the work of the attendant to be of great value. In some cases, doubtless, the household slayers acted as nurses. Thus, Plutarch mentions an old serving dame, who waited on a sick man, and Diogenes Laetius makes an old woman place a charm on the neck of her patient. It is only natural that people who expected to look after their sick kindred, and so the speaker in the Aegeneticus of Isocrates, takes credit to himself for nursing a friend when the relatives of the latter were themselves incapacitated. But the burden of nursing fell chiefly upon the wife. How wide was the scope of her duties is clear from a passage of Xenophon, which to us is all the more striking because the writer does not think he is uttering anything but mere commonplace. Whenever a slave is sick, says Ischomachus to his young wife, you must look after him. It is clear then, that in ordinary cases it was the duty of the wife to nurse the whole household, with the help, no doubt, of her daughters or maid servants. 
Now, if it be true that in the 4th century there was an increase in malaria, the task of the wife must have been much heavier. In the earlier times, if the view adopted in this book be correct, the work of nursing a Greek household was comparatively light. There were children's diseases, it is true, but no measles, scalatina or smallpox. The adult members of the family lived healthy lives, untroubled by serious sickness, except occasional epidemics of plague, and probably endemic consumption. But with the increase in malaria, all this will change. Few families would escape a yearly visitation, and apart from the disease itself, the wife would have to cope with the numerous maladies that are almost always its inevitable consequences. The importance and value of the wife would increase, and she would therefore be held in high esteem and honour. There has been shown above an increased esteem, for the wife is manifest in the new comedy. Not only is this so, but a character in Menander, in pointing out the advantage of marriage, lays stress first and foremost upon the value of a wife as nurse. The speech against Nera, which was written about the same time, appeals to the journey as well aware of the value of a wife in times of sickness. Of course, what has been said does not amount to proof, but is at least strong confidentiary evidence of the view that malaria became a serious factor in the lives of the Greeks during the 4th century BC. There is but little evidence as to the manner in which the wife fulfilled this important duty of nursing her family. Evidently, she had no special training, and her only skill must have been that which came from experience. Ignorant and superstitious, the women of Greece had often recourse to charms and amulets, and flocked in large numbers to the dream oracle to find out the means of curing their loved ones who were sick. But in spite of this, the Greek wife must have been trained in sympathy and tact by her work as nurse. And in this way, happier relations were established between her and her husband, who possibly learnt, when prostrated year after year by a lingering disease, to appreciate those virtues which belong, in a peculiar way, to women, and especially to a mother and a wife. It will probably never be known how much the human race owes to the disease for the development of the kindlier virtues of mercy, sympathy, and tenderness. Appendix 2 Greece seems to have enjoyed considerable immunity from the ordinary infectious diseases. Measles and smallpox are not mentioned. It is very doubtful whether the Hippocratic collection refers either to diphtheria or scalatina. No case can be made out for the presence of syphilis or bubonic plague. In short, none of the more common infectious disorders of modern times, with certain important exceptions, are to be noticed in the Greek medical writings. In the first chapter of the book of Epidemics, there is a very clear description of mumps, with supervening ochitis, an epidemic having occurred in Thesos. The disease does not receive any particular name, and there is no reason for supposing that it was endemic throughout Greece. Typhus almost certainly occurred, especially in the early period, as famine plagues are so frequently mentioned. But as it would come in epidemics, we need not be surprised that the medical writers give no clear account of it. Their attention always taken up by endemic disease. The difficulty about typhoid has been touched upon already. The verdict of Stephanos is, as it seems to me, the right one. He says, There is nothing definite to be said about typhoid in ancient Greece, although in the ancient authors are to be found certain passages and clinical observations which have been thought to point to typhoid fever. Nevertheless, the arguments brought forward up to the present are for the most part very inconclusive. At first sight, the statement of Suedo-Aristotle, 
that fevers are not infectious seems to settle the question. On the other hand, we do not know what the Greeks meant exactly by infection. When many people were attacked by a fever, they probably imagined that the disease was in the air, and not that it was carried from person to person. Again, typhoid may be included in loimos, which Aristotle says denoted a particularly infectious disease. If, however, the view would be taken that typhoid did not exist, practically all the fevers in the ancient writings must be regarded as malarial, in which case the condition of Greece was much worse than it has been described in the preceding pages. Malta fever certainly existed in some parts of Greece. There can be no doubt that tuberculosis was frightfully prevalent. This is all the more remarkable inasmuch as some hold that malaria and tuberculosis are antagonistic, while the ancient Greeks certainly lived a healthy open-air life. Not only does physicists hold a prompt position in the medical writers, but it was known to be contagious. Lucian mentions the disease at least three times, and appears along with fevers as a messenger and servant of death. Tuberculosis exacts a very heavy toll from modern Greece. During the year 1905, there were 649 deaths from it in Athens alone, and for the next two years, the figures are 595 and 694. At Patras, for the same period, the deaths number 142, 117, 126, and at Seda, 125-92-101. These give fairly high rates, and it's been natural that Professor Savas, in his inaugural address to the Greek Anti-Malarial League, called Consumption and Malaria, the two diseases which above all others inflict the most damage upon the country. See Sifimeris Tis Negeas, 1st July, 1905. Diseases of the eyes were evidently extremely common. Hippocrates, in his aphorisms, says that epidemics of ophthalmia occurred in summer when the winter had been dry with winds from the north and the spring had been wet with winds from the south. It was known that ophthalmia was contagious. This evidence is curiously confirmed by the inscriptions to votive offerings. The favourite disease in Athens during the 4th century seems to have been bad eyes, Votive eyes in ones and twos make up two-fifths of the whole number. End of section 7